Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tom Fabian, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to our guest, uh, Dr. Susan Brownell, uh, who's a professor of anthropology at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, about her book, uh, The Anthropology of Sport, Bodies, Borders, and Politics, Biopolitics, sorry, um, which she co-wrote with Nico Besnier and Thomas F. Carter. Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thank, yeah, thank you for, for coming on. Um, uh, I think we'd like to start off with knowing a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you went to school, um, why anthropology? Sure. Well, I grew up in a conservative little town in Virginia where there were no organized sports for women until my mother and a few other mothers and some female students went to a school board meeting and reminded them that Title IX had been passed several years ago and they were not in compliance with it. So that's how I got involved in track and field in my ninth grade year. And I had grown up on a farm raising horses and jumping over fences with horses. So in that kind of atmosphere where no girls had had the opportunity to do track and field in the area, I had immediate success. And one thing led to another. I went to the University of Virginia on a full athletic scholarship, and I was the first class at the University of Virginia to have um, a full uh, suite of, of athletic scholarships for women. And I became a nationally competitive athlete, competed into Olympic trials in 1980 and 1984. My event was the multi-event. At first, it was the pentathlon, and then later they um, added two events, and it became the heptathlon, which it remains today for women. That's the female equivalent of the decathlon. So I was, uh, my, my first, you know, my starting point was my involvement in sport. I fell in love with anthropology at the University of Virginia. Um, it was just so outrageous. We had a really key thinker there, Victor Turner, who was just wildly creative. Um, he was a theorist of ritual and religion, as well as some other real wild and woolly thinkers. And I, it was like unlike anything I'd ever, you know, had in high school. So I majored in anthropology, and then I decided I would like to go on to graduate school and aim to be a university professor, which is what my father was. He taught mathematics at a small local university. Um, and I arrived in uh, at Santa Barbara, uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, and I needed to decide upon my field site. As it happened, a classmate right ahead of me was in China at that time. China had just opened up to American researchers. Um, in 1979, the U.S. and China had restored diplomatic relations and a couple of years later, academic exchanges began. So he was there under the sole program by which PhD researchers could get into China and spend a year doing research. So I wanted to be one of the first people to um, get into China and do research. I didn't, um, I hadn't really settled definitely on sport as my topic, but in preparation for going to China to study a year of language, I, I did write two master's theses on sport in China. And the reason being um, was that, you know, of course, I had my sports background. Also, it was clear even then that um, for China as a socialist nation and in the wake of ping pong diplomacy, that sport was a major channel by which China was engaging with the outside world. 
So I got to China and things turned out far better than I could have um, expected. I joined the track team at Peking University. This was 1985. I was studying Chinese there. And I ended up being selected to represent Beijing City in the 1986 National College Games. So by then, I had a really rare ethnographic experience since, you know, intensive fieldwork was my research method. And I decided to use it as the foundation to move forward on my dissertation. I went back to China for another year in 1987 to 88, which I spent at the Beijing Sport University researching the Chinese sports system in a broader way. And that's, that's what launched my career. I've been a scholar of Chinese sports essentially for my entire career. Uh, yeah, and, and you wrote a pretty uh, influential book, uh, the first by a Westerner on Chinese sport training the body. China, right? And, and how, how did, how did uh, you get to writing this anthropology book with uh, Nico and Thomas? Well, so I've, I, I'm something that's kind of rare, which is someone who was a sport anthropologist from the beginning. Sport anthropology just has not cohered as a subfield within the discipline of anthropology. Uh, and so um, the people who do it are more typically people who did a more conventional topic, you know, the family or modernization or something like that um, for the dissertation. And then once they had tenure... <laughs> Um, decided, you know, to dabble in sports. And so I've been keenly aware that uh, it just doesn't exist as a subfield in anthropology. There's no journal for it. Um, You you know, you will never see a job advertisement looking specifically for a sport anthropologist. And, uh, but but, uh, these days with sports, obvious cultural economic and political importance, more young researchers are, are, are starting out researching it. So Nico Besnier and I felt that it was time to sort of bring it together as a subfield. Nico is a long-term collaborator of mine who uh, recently, like maybe about 10 years ago, started to um, move into the realm of sport anthropology. And then we invited Thomas Carter to join us, who was also an, uh, by then an established sport anthropologist and one of the few others who had also researched sport for his dissertation. He researched Cuban baseball. And uh, so the three of us set out to write a book, which would sort of be an update on the state of the subfield, um, the, the previous definitive text by Blanchard and Cheska, uh, dated to 1985. So it was time to bring in, you know, all of the new theories, the relevant theories that had uh, emerged since that time. And yeah, we just really were uh, attempting to write a book that could be used in teaching undergraduate or graduate courses, and that would help to define the field in the 21st century. And like I told you, sort of in the preamble, um, I really enjoyed it for the for the structure of it. I, I found that it lends itself quite nicely to teaching a course. Um, but can you tell me how, how you sort of came up with the, the the structure of the book and how you divvied up the sort of work between the three of you? I think the structure of the book is fairly conventional, really. We start uh, with an overview of the history of anthropology's relationship with sport. And then we move into a historical chapter, which is sport colonialism and imperialism, because obviously these two uh, phenomena of the 19th century really shaped uh, the sport that we have with us today. And then from there, we sort of moved through some rather conventional themes, although I do think that Chapter 3, which immodestly was my contribution, was a, a little bit of a, a new thing, sport, health, and the environment. I, I thought we needed to add that because medical anthropology has become such a huge subfield of anthropology, and we needed a chapter that really um, dealt with the medical, bio, uh, medical anthropology angle. Uh, that was interesting because in writing that chapter, I researched the um, interest, 
the relationship between medical anthropology and sport anthropology and discovered basically there wasn't one. The two disciplines, as much as they might have in common, just haven't been talking with each other. So uh, I think that's a bit novel. But then following that are chapters which are pretty conventional, social class, race, ethnicity, sex, gender, and sexuality. Um, we, we also have then chapter six is another chapter that comes out of my own interests, cultural performances and mega events. Uh, that dates back to my um, having been a, a student of Victor Turner while an undergraduate. And um, so I've, I've always been very interested in applying ritual theory to sport. And I have done that ever since uh, my very first publication. Uh, then moving forward, we have nationalism, sport in the world system, and of course, uh, our epilogue, which is sort of our agenda for the future. Um, one of the things we emphasize in the epilogue, which was also something we really wanted to do throughout the book, was to demonstrate the value of studying sport for the discipline as a whole. We, we really emphasize this because of the problem of the ghettoization of the topic. You know, there is a tendency in sport um, for, you know, only people interested in sport read, read the sports stuff. And um, so we didn't want to simply show how current theories can be applied to sport, but we also wanted to show how sport contributes to the understanding of our contemporary world that, that we are seeking through contemporary theories. And that, that leads me to another question of mine, but, you know, why is anthropology well-suited to, to analyze the sort of nature of sport? Well, I would say many, many disciplines are well-suited to analyze different facets of sport. But the particular angle that, that we um, focused on, of course, is the um, intercultural aspect of sport, the fact that it was um, uh, international sports the sports that are part of the global system were carried throughout the world originally through colonialism and imperialism. And then since that time, there have just been very interesting things going on in the world of sport that are really central in the discipline of anthropology, and we are the ones that have the best insights about them. So that includes the topic, of course, which interests you, the interaction between so-called traditional and modern sports, the conflicts and the um, you know, what a westernization that occurs along with modernization where traditional sports start to um, disappear and go into decline. Um, but, it, but it also in, includes, you know, problems like China as a non-Western superpower, non-Western sort of culture, its rise as a superpower and the fact that that entails cultural accommodations and um, actually trauma, you know, to Chinese people who have to enter into a global system not of their own making. So th these kinds of issues, um, we tried to foreground them in the book, and I, I think that anthropology is really the discipline best suited to look at them. Um, we, we basically foreground culture in the book, and that, of course, is our catchword in anthropology. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and can you speak to the influences of certain scholars in the field of sport anthropology? And, and here and you mentioned Victor Turner and, and well, Victor Turner on, on your own sort of uh, worldview. But here I'm thinking of, you know, Clifford Geertz or Roger Daimah or even somebody like Henning Eichberg. Well, we, we do try to give a nod to all of the scholars who have contributed insights and theories um, that are that we that we felt were foundational and and um, continue to be relevant. That, by the way, did entail going beyond anthropology because you know, there just haven't been that many sport anthropologists. So the book ranges rather widely in the um, disciplines that it references. History, of course, is a big one. So in terms of key anthropologists, yes, Victor Turner was one, ritual theory, the notion of cultural performance. Um, Henning Eichberg has always been a favorite scholar of mine. He's another one even more wildly creative than Turner was. Um, you know, who, who uh, was the first to sort of talk about the issue of so-called traditional 
sports and their relationship with the, the modern global system. Um, Pierre Bourdieu is a favorite of ours when it comes to social class, uh, you know, and his notion of habitus. Um, and, uh, but then we, you know, we, we use some of the, uh, political scientists like Benedict Anderson's concept of imagined community or Hobsbawm and Ranger, um, historians when we get into nation and nationalism. So, as I said, we, we take the theories that are relevant and we weren't too particular about, um, whether they were anthropologists or not. No, no, absolutely. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, Great that you you mentioned mention all these people because right they're they're all adding to the field and and you did mention that there was in the book you mentioned that there was uh, an effort uh, a couple a couple of decades ago to actually get um, a sport or at least play um, into you know more sort of academic contexts. Can you speak more about the sort of concept of play in the early notions of sport anthropology? Well, that was from the Association for the Study of Play, which was a terribly uh, creative group that was, um, it was actually, I I believe that uh, it was, it was interdisciplinary, but um, it, it it involved a key group of anthropologists who originally sort of conceived it as anthropological, and that's probably why, for example, they were holding meetings with the um, American Ethnological Society when I uh, first met them. Um, but but then it sort of moved away from uh, anthropology, and and um, it probably originally had the word anthropology in the title, but later on dropped it. So um, that, that was a tremendously creative group of people that managed to mobilize around the notion of play, which was real sort of hot and central across several disciplines in like the 1970s and 80s. So, yeah, we, we definitely acknowledge their contribution. I, I think that at least for the sorts of phenomena we were looking at, we were very interested in globalization and the global sports system because, of course, that's a pretty notable phenomenon in the 21st century. And that, you know, from that angle, play uh, ended up being less helpful as a body of theory to uh, illuminate what we were looking at. Okay. Uh, and to back up, you'd, you'd mentioned your, your third chapter on sport, health, and the environment. Um, and I was, I had this in my notes here, but um, I've noticed that it's not often touched on in a lot of sports studies contexts, um, this idea of, of uh, medicine, um, health, uh, health and the environment. And is that, and I know you touched on this before, but is that because sport medicine is understudied or because the history of non-Western sports relationships with the body or the environment is not fully understood? Or is it because there are not sort of quote-unquote hot topics in the world of sports? Or is it a combination or is it that, you know? Yeah, it's well, that was an interesting thing that I discovered because I essentially drafted and wrote most of that chapter, which really is an original chapter, and uh, I keep thinking I should rework it and try to publish it as a journal article also. But I think, at least within anthropology, there was this, there were these silos. Uh, medical anthropology wasn't talking to environmental anthropology. Um, tur- tourism, the anthropology of tourism is in there, but they haven't been that interested in sport either. And then there's sport anthropology, which um, probably the majority of work does tend to be focused these days on sports that are part of the international system. And then then if the work isn't focused on that, it's focused on so-called traditional sports, you know, with a a concern about uh, issues of heritage, uh, cultural preservation and historical heritage. So all of that had produced no crosstalk between, or very little crosstalk between these subfields, with the exception, of course, of Henning Eichberg, who was writing about sport and the environment all the way back in the context of the Munich Olympics in 1972. 
and a, and I have mentioned that he 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 was just such a creative thinker who drew from many many disciplines. So uh, he was a bit of an exception. So yeah, it it it's part of uh, the one reason that this uh, siloization was occurring was that each of the subfields was so small. The number of people actually researching any of these fields. You know, it was quite small, and I think they had enough to do without reaching out that far to look at other subfields. Yes, no, absolutely. And I agree with you that Henning Eichberg was uh, a very creative mind. Um, he's one of my favorites as well. Um, and, and I guess moving into a point that you touched on regarding Eichberg, uh, throughout the book, an underlying theme was this march towards modernity and Globalization of sport, and I guess that's obviously how you structured it, and it makes sense. But uh, what are your thoughts, you know, you know, on on not just the marginalization of traditional, you know, folk or ethnic sports, but um, whether they whether there is a, a cultural space for them in sort of the modern world? Is that is that possible anymore, or will we just sort of move on towards, you know, more and more global variations of sport? Well, what's happening with traditional sport really has to be looked at um, in its local context. I think it varies quite widely. So different things are happening with different sports in different parts of the world. Um, one of the thing that's, things that's quite interesting, um, of which examples are traditional Senegalese wrestling or the Chinese martial arts wushu in China, is that these were sports that were wildly indigenous sports that were wildly popular to start with and widespread and had a very broad grassroots basis. And so then as capitalism, if you will, sort of enters, permeates the world around them, they were able to sort of absorb and incorporate it and, um, and use it in the service of the sport. So that definitely happens that um, basically economic modernization brings more money into the sport and enables it to thrive um, in, in its local setting and possibly even to go, go global. Not the case with Senegalese wrestling, but Wushu has, has been officially promoted on a global basis. Um, I think there are other sports, you know, I've, um, some of the minority ethnic sports in China, for example, in villages there, you will see them dying out. And it's basically because young people are watching television. Of course, they have access to the Internet and they, they just think their traditional sports are less exciting. Uh, one, in fact, one thing that's been um, stated to me by a Chinese scholar studying uh, traditional sports among the Miao is that competition, like really fierce, the really fierce competition that characterizes, say, men's professional soccer is it is very appealing to young people. And some of the traditional minority activities downplay competition. I mean, this is something that, you know, cultural anthropology has pointed out that um, not all uh, cultures are amenable to competition. You know, many tend to downplay it. So anyway, um, for that reason, minority, the, the activities, minority, what, what are called the ethnic sports among the Miao, um, may be a little bit in decline just because young people think they're boring and they're not on television either. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, then there's also the, the, the resistance um, sports um, that are out there that are sort of there. Um, you know, to, to, to go against the sort of tide of modernity or globalization. Um, and you mentioned, you know, Gaelic games or, or wrestling in India, some of these examples. Right. There are situations in which it bec- can become a little bit militant almost. And, you know, it has to do with people defending a certain identity against what is perceived as uh, a, a dominant or hegemonic identity. Of course, it, it helps if those people have the economic wherewithal also to uh, wage that battle against, uh, you know, sort of the hegemonic international sports system. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Right. It's not, not an easy feat by any stretch. Um, and, uh, but there are, there are definitely some interesting initiatives that are going on currently to try to sort of quell the, this tide. But um, we won't get into that today. Uh, instead, I'd like to move on to Chapter 5, um, Sex, Gender, and Sexuality. Um, where you know, gender binary inheritance board, and you also bring up uh, very important concepts like intersex and heteronormativity. Um, and you also um, go into the history of sex segregation and sex testing. And because the book was published in 2018, the Cassius case had already opened up. And based on the recent IAAF Court of Arbitration for Sport ruling, how do you think that scholarship like this can help inform and be a conduit for social change um, in these respects? Yeah, we spent quite a bit of time in that chapter talking about the history of sex testing in sport, which uh, I, I'm not sure if many, if all readers caught the fact that Part of that was a nod to biological anthropology, you know, which is another subfield that hasn't given sport a lot of attention. But in this particular area, it it was the subfield in which anthropologists had made this intervention. Um, Katrina Karkazis was the person, the, you know, bioanthropologist who had um, made some of the compelling interventions. So. You know, part of what we were trying to do was to show that anthropology's biocultural model of human beings was particularly suited to look at the issue of sex testing as she has done. And I, I think that all of the sort of conceptual arguments we made in that chapter have held and continue to partly explain what's been going on. Um, and... Uh, the, and, and in terms of where all of this is going, it's just it's very interesting because there are now people who are arguing that we're going to have to come up with a third category um, for you know some sports or um, some events perhaps in uh, track and field. I mean, it's interesting to me because track and field has really turned out to be the hot button sport where these issues have come to the forefront. So that being my sport, you know, that I participate in, I, I find that sort of interesting how, how that has evolved. Um, so I, I think that, you know, you, you just see this strong commitment uh, in international sport organizations to defending a gender binary, no matter what kind of twisted logic you have to come up with to defend it. And uh, to, you know, but, but that, that, I mean, that, that was, it was a kind of religion or faith until recently. I mean, the idea that this is the way the world is and has to be was just so strongly held until very recently. But, uh, you know, there are signs that, that, that belief itself, that faith is now open to question. And there are cracks in the edifice that are quite interesting. I, I've been particularly interested in, um, the the uh, youth Olympic Games, for example, where they've been coming up with experimental events that mi mixed sex events that were not present in the Olympic Games, and then finally um, we have a now we have a world relay event in track and field in which you have mixed sex relays, which was something that had always existed at the local level, and you know there was no reason why you couldn't have it at international levels, except just this belief that we need to have men and women separated. And, um, you know, so now we're, we're having relays in which some of the legs are run by women, some of the legs are run by men. And this is, you know, a big world event by now. So I think that's, that's a sign that things are changing in track and field, which is, I think, the bellwether sport right now. 
I'm, on the other hand, it is really concerning uh, that, you know, this new ruling that focused on a few restricted track and field events um, in which um, sex testing, uh, in which it was, you know, supposedly determined that testosterone gives um, gives intersexes an advantage that maybe they don't have in other events. But if you're at intersex and you're in these, you know, restricted events, you're now banned. And, you know, that uh, really seemed to target not only Castor Semenya, but then uh, in the 800 meters, but then it recently turned out that Margaret Wambui was also uh, uh, an intersex. And she um, stated that publicly only uh, a week or two ago. That's right. That's right. It's it's uh, it's very relevant right now. So and and then I mean so it just really looks to me like as it happened there were at least two and maybe three intersexes on the medal stand in the Rio Olympics in the eight hundred meters and that somehow the IOC and the IAAF knew it and therefore they targeted the eight hundred meters and managed to throw a couple of other events in there to boot. I, you know, I I just really, quite, I, I still have to question the science um, behind it and the science of testosterone. I think still is, uh, yeah, I mean, almost non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> no, a- a- absolutely, and that's why I do think that that this chapter um, and and uh, chapter three on, um, on you know, health uh, health and sport and medicine um, are are so vital right now. Like I said before, it's, it's very relevant. Um, and, and a book like this coming from an anthropological perspective and explaining how anthropology can, can be used um, to understand these things at, at a cultural, sociocultural level um, is so important. Um, so it's, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty you know, good time to actually get this kind of a book out. So um, yeah, good timing. Great. Um, Yeah, and I'm glad you recognize sort of the innovative nature of those two chapters, which was really collaborative. I had the interest in medical anthropology. Tom had the interest in environment and tourism, and Nico had the interest in um, sex testing. I think I actually did most of the research for the sex testing section, but it was really at Nico's insistence that we have to have this in there. Yeah. No, no, it's, it, it was, uh, I think both of those really, really um, hit the nail on the head and, and bring a lot of those ideas together because you say that, you know, not just you, but I think we all agree that the science behind some of the decisions is very questionable. And, and so, you know, you come back to why is sports science not better understood uh, from an academic standpoint? And so I think, I think that um, you three do a really good job of actually getting into the, the nitty gritty of it. Well, you know, um, more, more in, uh, also very interesting here was to realize that the science of sex itself is not that well developed, and that it had really been in the realm of sex testing that there had been an attempt to engage with it scientifically and to really pinpoint what exactly is the relationship between biology and culture going on here. So, um, I mean, that was kind of interesting to realize that in some ways sports is pushing forward. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to call it a frontier because it's, it's sport, you know, screaming and kicking as it gets dragged along on the frontier. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, yeah. Just, it turned out to be um, a, a, a just a, the place where you could really um, look at the, some of these issues. And finally realize how complex they are, that that biological sex or sex as we know it is the result of hormones, of gonads, of anatomy, of cultural identity, of legal identity, you know, what's on your uh, official papers, of, um, you know, testosterone and other androgens. You know, I mean, it's just so complex. It's it's just way more than we thought it was when, uh, you know, because like I was one of the people in the generation in the 70s and 80s when gender studies were really taking off. And I taught some of the first gender studies courses, you know, like at my university here in which we taught about sex and gender. Sex is fixed at birth. Gender is learned and variable. 
And then it turns out they, it's not that simple. <laughs> yes, yes, it's very, it's very, very complex to say the least. But but isn't it isn't that amazing about how the popularity of sport, you know, through the media and, and I guess through, through that experience is, is actually bringing up these these very complex topics of of intersex. Um, of testosterone, of uh, of the gender binary in sport, with mo- which most people sort of see, but they don't actually understand the, the social ramifications of it. So I think that this this case, with all the media coverage of it um, on the world level, has is opening up a lot of um, a lot of conversations about uh, some more profound uh, sort of issues in our society. It so. is. It is amazing. It is amazing that it's happening in sport. It's sort of, in mm-hmm. a way, it's just fortuitous. It has to do with the nature of sport. It's not that mm-hmm. the uh, people who control sport wanted it to happen, but it did. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's uh, and, and granted for 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 those of us that that do study sport, um, it, it is also you know it's a good thing. You know, maybe we will see some job posting for sport anthropologists. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's true. In the realm of sex testing or the IAAF, right. yeah, they should be hiring a sport anthropologist. But unfortunately, exactly. sport anthropologists and those with similar leanings tend to be their antagonists, not their supporters. So. Exactly, exactly. It's 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 it's, little, it's it's definitely difficult in in the sport humanities and social sciences to get um, you know those that are uh, profoundly non-critical of the the larger organizations. But it does start the conversation up. Um, uh, moving, this is a great, great topic, but moving on to the, the next one, um, you had mentioned, um, ritual theory, um, Turner, um, but, but what is the significance of the performative term in sport anthropology? And I think we go more into that in chapter six. Well, I think it's important to remember that one thing about sport is that it's got two facets. One is everyday practice, you know, that's the training which is sort of ongoing around the world at any point in time. But that there are these periodic events that punctuate this um, ongoing structure, and these periodic events are, are like rituals. Now, whether they are or aren't rituals, I think in the end becomes a somewhat uninteresting question because, uh, I, I mean, religion itself is sort of a Western Western-centric category and trying to impose it in other in all situations is just isn't always helpful. So you know the point being, you, you can call them rituals, um, or we we choose the more generic word of cultural performances or performance genres, which com- comes out of the cultural performance um, body of theory of which Victor Turner was a major contributor. Um, You know, but the the point here is to have some theoretical tools to look at that part of sport, which is a public performance and organized event. Right. No, and it, it, um, it definitely was a, uh, an interesting uh, chapter from a, from a theoretical um, standpoint, because it does get into um, really the, the tools, like you mentioned, um, that that sport anthropology can use to dissect some of these um, some of these cultural uh, events, and, and actually moving on from six through to chapter eight, you start dissecting the role of the nation in international competitions. Um, can you elaborate on on this history and and how nations will be represented in the future by these transnational athletes? We call them code switchers. <laughs> well. If you look at the history, uh, this this chapter actually goes back and revisits uh, the same time period that we first reviewed under colonialism and imperialism in chapter two and sort of looks at it from a different uh, angle. And that angle is the rise of the modern nation state. And you can see that uh, the international sports system and um, you know a lot of the major sports events as we know them, like the FIFA World Cup, the Olympic Games, and, uh, and, and and sort of Western or modern sports as a whole um, were just completely connected with the rise of the modern nation state. And um, 
Eric Hobsbawm actually uh, mentioned this in, in a rather useful way. I wish I wish he had devoted a little bit more attention to it, but you know he came up with this great theory of um, the invention of tradition and talked about the invention of r- rituals of nationalism like flags, anthems, parades, all that sort of thing. And he observed that, in fact, uh, sports events were, were part of this invention of tradition and the, uh, you know, were completely supportive of national ideology. So that, that's sort of a helpful insight that is used, uh, you know, throughout the chapter, this fact that sport and nationalism have been connected since the, you know, late uh, 1700s and still are today. And then, uh, and then we sort of move forward and, and we do sort of unpack that a, a little bit and show that, however, this nationalism is, is a fantasy, you know, it's not exactly a hard and fast reality. And we demonstrate that by talking about citizenship switching by athletes at the level of major international competitions. And uh, in, actually, in the course of the research for this chapter, I discovered something I didn't even know, which is that, um, I mean, the, the received wisdom is that the U.S. has never had a practice of fast-tracking athletes to citizenship in order to allow them to compete in Olympic Games. But it turns out that's not strictly true because the, um, the Army has this particular program for world-class athletes who are recruited only if they are already capable of winning world and Olympic medals. And because uh, since 9-11, the uh, people who serve in the military can be fast-tracked to citizenship, well, that means these athletes can be fast-tracked to citizenship. So um, anyway, yeah, so that was, you know, interesting to realize that, in fact, the U.S. is taking part in that in a limited way, whereas, of course, we have some other nations that are taking part in it in a big way, with uh, Qatar being sort of one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you, the example came up of, uh, what is it, uh, Qatari handball players that uh, get fast-tracked to citizenship, um, uh, you know, and none of them, I think, no, there's maybe, you know, uh, Twenty-five percent of the actual national team is is made up of of, uh, of nationals, and the rest are foreign nationals. So it's a no. It's definitely a very interesting um, new world of international sport um, and this migration of athletes. And and does that does that affect things like um, like the Olympic Games or or the FIFA World Cup, where where fans are now looking at these. You know, the makeup of their their, their national teams, um, and they're noticing that oh, they're they're not actually born here. Or do you think fans are just like whatever you win medals, you win medals? Well, it is interesting because the the backlash against that has not been as great as you might expect, and I I guess it gets um, you know suppressed by just the thrill of victory and the respect for people with really exceptional athletic skills. Just the you know amazement that people get watching them in action yeah no and i think we're seeing that in in the winter olympics uh a lot now too with um with more and more sort of hot climate nations that are are not necessarily recruiting athletes but athletes are are going to go you know compete for them um you know like the nigerian women's bobsled team recently so there's a lot of this and that sorry they were all sort of uh born in the U.S. Uh, from Nigerian parents, but but still, it's very interesting to sort of, you know, this cross-border um, culture that's occurring in, in sport. And again, just like we were talking about how sport is amazing and bringing up these topics about gender, it's also really interesting that it brings up these topics of, of what is a nation and transnationalism and, you know, do borders really even matter? <laughs> and yeah. so, um, well, no, you know, citizenship switching is isn't a new phenomenon that that's gone on ever since the ancient greeks um i i think i think we just didn't get uh, we didn't know much about it it wasn't covered much even now you really have to dig a little bit to find the information you mentioned nigeria it came to my attention uh like at the rio 2016 olympics like how many members of the us 
Olympic team were either children of Nigerian immigrants or, um, you know, possibly um, born, you, you know, several generations. Anyway, I, I have the impression that Nigerians are overrepresented on our Olympic team, but without doing hours and hours of tedious research, I, I just couldn't get at it. So, right, right. That'd be, that'd be a large sort of data crunch. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's, it's definitely very interesting. Again, how sport brings out these, these, these bigger questions about our, our societies today. Well, that, that kind of also segues into the next chapter, Sport in the World System, because the thing that is new, so the citizenship switching isn't new. But sport migration, um, that is to say the uh, migration of athletes from the global south and from third world countries to wealthier countries um, in, in order to compete for professional teams, is that is uh, happening on a, a new scale um, compared to the past. So that's, uh, that's one, one thing that's uh, relatively, the, the scale of it's uh, new and, you know, that has been made possible essentially by the growth of global capitalism, if you will, um, satellite television, corporate advertising, just the flow of capital into professional sports has um, made made it that much more appealing and has forced teams to look that much further afield for talent. Right, right. And, and I, I think one of the examples is the Fijian rugby players, uh, that are playing in like French leagues or something, uh, and and how that how it's sort of a um, a sort of a labor drain in, in you know in sporting sporting context uh, from you know from Fiji, but from other parts of the world where um, sort of more robust leagues or professional organizations can't really um, compete when they're when the players are moving off to other parts of the world. Yeah. Well, that was what actually got my uh, collaborator, Nico Besnier, into sport anthropology in the first place. And I, when, when he first started saying this, I thought he was crazy. He, he, he observed the phenomenon in Tonga, which he's been going to for decades. He's a, a scholar of the Pacific Islands. And, um, you know, he had observed that a point had been reached in which in, in Tonga, basically, any young man hoping to achieve something, some income for his family, and a little bit of respect had to migrate elsewhere. And because most of the menial labor that migrants do is simply not very glamorous, but Tongans were having uh, some success in rugby. So rugby had become basically the life's aspiration for almost every um, ethnic Tongan in Tonga, young man. And and I thought he was exaggerating. <laughs> you know, I would hear him give talks, and I would think, you know, oh, that's very dramatic, you know. But I've started to, you know, after if you read the book or read some of his work, I mean, this is the way it really is. And so, and this is a, it is a new phenomenon, and it is related to the changing shape of global capitalism, in which local agriculture has fallen apart in different parts of the world, you know, due to the globalization of agriculture and farming is no longer viable at the small level. And then you have this complete um, collapse of the traditional infrastructure, uh, economic infrastructure. So, yeah. So that, that was how he got into sport migration. <laughs> No, it, it's it's all very fascinating, and I'm glad that I'm glad you do take on a lot of these bigger issues. Um, and that's why I'm saying I think it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenal text for for a course, um, even just about you know sport history, like looking at it from an anthropological perspective or sports sociology, whatever it may be. Um, but Susan, um, we've taken up quite a bit of your time, so I'm going to get to the the last question here. But what are you working on currently? Well, I am uh, preparing, hopefully, to do research. I'm, I'm applying for grants to do research on the Tokyo Olympic Games. And I'm particularly interested in the fact that we've entered a period when we're going to have three consecutive Olympic Games in East Asia. We just had the Pyeongchang 2018 Winter Games, and I was there and I did some research there, hoping to be in Tokyo. And then Beijing 
the joint Winter Games bid uh, from Beijing and Zhang Jiakou from for 2022. So this is the first time in Olympic history that we've had three consecutive installments outside the traditional Western powers. And of course, pundits are wondering, does this mean East Asia is on the rise and the West is in decline? And I, I do hope to answer some of those big questions, um, but I also just want to look um, more specifically at what what is happening in these three games and what does this say about East Asia as a world region um, and about its engagement with globalization. Very interesting. Very interesting. I think that... Uh... I think that there's definitely a lot to be said about um, about these Olympics all being in that part of the world. Um, and I think you also mentioned in the book that you've vis- you've been to a couple of Olympics now, um, and that it's it's important as an as an anthropologist of sport to actually be at these events to to sort of witness them firsthand because there are there are so many people that are critical, so many scholars that are critical of these big events that have actually never experienced it firsthand. So. Um, I, yeah, that, that's something that's really irritating about studying these mega events in general. There's so much that's um, text that's produced about them, and people see them on TV and newspapers. You know, there's a lot online these days, so people think they're experts. And um, as an anthropologist, I, I have to um, really echo John McAloon, who's this original ethnographer of Olympic Games who's made this point, you know, you, you shouldn't uh, pretend to have acono- academic knowledge about a subject that you've only known through secondhand reports by other people, you know, you should get down there and actually talk to the people involved face to face in order to claim, you know, to have a sound basis, uh, you know, epistemological basis uh, knowledge of the Olympic Games. So, yes, I'm a great believer in ethnography in general and also um, ethnography in studying mega events. No, that's, 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 I think that's a very important point. Um, and on that point, uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it uh, personally. Um, and so, yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a very interesting conversation. And uh, thanks so much for your positive words about our book. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I look forward to, uh, to potentially bringing it to a class one day. Anyway, okay, great. AK for now. Thank you. Thank you.